Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. This is the Health, Medicine, and Bioscience Edition. I have Dr. Michelle Hulawi. Uh, she has a doctorate in clinical psychology with an emphasis in child and family psychology at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. She's working in the mental health field um, since 1991. Uh, working again with uh, children's mental health. So we're going to talk about that. So Dr. Malawi, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, what, what got you interested in working in the, in the field you're in? And then what's your recent focus? And where has it all led to over the past 20, 30 years? Right. So um, I became interested long ago in working with children. And I've kind of navigated through adolescence and now also work with adults. Um, but one of the things I see a lot is I do a lot of psychological testing in addition to therapy with children and families. Um, and one of the things that I see a lot with the individuals that we do testing with are a history of some sleep issues, which got me curious to dig a little bit deeper into what that could be about. There's been a lot of research in the last 10, 15 years that might explain that connection. Um, so that's one area I do some education around in the community, as well as with the clients that we're working with, um, both in testing and in therapy. Um, so so let's, let's focus in on um, <clears throat> children and sleep issues. What, what do you see commonly today? What kind of issues do parents say that kids have? Um, well, in particular, kind of from a general perspective, uh, kids struggle with falling asleep well, especially kids who have sleep disorders or who have uh, ADHD, which is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Um, and then there's some societal aspects to that too. I think um, school and sleep do not always go well together because as kids are aging through puberty and teen years, their circadian rhythms shifts a bit to where they're not tired until later, um, which is normal and natural and why they don't want to go to sleep until sometimes 10 or 11 PM. Um, but then their bodies want to sleep that full nine hours that they really do need. But schools start at 637, 738 o'clock in the morning. So they aren't able to get enough sleep. So there's kind of that cultural or societal piece. So we often have really sleep deprived kids, um, especially those really high achieving teens who are pushing themselves a lot and to get all that work done and, and perform well. So they don't want to leave something undone and they stay up late then to get that done, which kind of further messes with their circadian rhythms, which is their, what regulates their sleep wake cycles. Um, and it's there's not, yeah, it's not good. <laughs> um, and, you know, unfortunately there's not a whole, whole lot they can do about that part. Um, but what we know is that having sleep deprivation at all ages has some different impacts on mental health, on cognitive processing, on behavior regulation. Um, and so it, it is kind of a bi-directional impact that if someone's struggling with anxiety, stress, depression, ADHD, they're going to have more difficulty with sleep. And if they're having more difficulty with sleep, they're going to struggle more with anxiety, stress, mood, and attention and hyperactivity. Yeah, I've heard kids react the opposite way adults do to not enough sleep. You know, adults may be tired or, or grumpy, but kids sometimes may maybe get hyperactive 
um, yeah. they act out. What, what have you seen when the, the child's not sleeping right? What are some of the possibilities of their behavior? That's exactly that's exactly right. So we as adults, we get sluggish, we get a little bit forgetful, but kids tend to ramp up. They tend to get more hyper, more fidgety, more irritable and cranky. Um, their concentration is poor, although that's true for us as well. Um, memory and learning is not exactly um, something that their brain is ready to do. Um, and so it, it can look like something different. Um, and in fact, there are some studies that say that children that have sleep disorders, like delayed sleep onset, disordered breathing, like you might get with uh, adenoids that are swollen or tonsillitis, they tend to have ADHD-like symptoms in all of those ways. So they are you know, inattentive and fidgety or hyper or reactive. Um, and for a subset of those kids, resolving the sleep issue makes them no longer meet criteria for having ADHD. So... Um... How do you, I mean, you do, is it mostly clinical work or is it more research? What are you doing um, nowadays? Yeah, I, I myself do mostly clinical work. Um, I run a group practice in Fairfax, Virginia, and um, also educate a lot in the community. So I'll give talks at, you know, schools or um, other organizations in the community that want to know more about these topics. Um, and so that's one of the ways I try to reach a little broader than just those I can see individually. Um, but some of the ways that we do that is we work on this term called sleep hygiene, which is a little bit of a cheesy term, but what it basically means is having good sleep practices and sleep routines that set your body up to be ready to go to sleep in a timely way and then be able to stay asleep so that you can get that out, the sleep that is needed. Um, so there's so when, when, in, the, yeah. in the clinic, who comes in moms or dads more and do they have their kid in tow? And you know, what's the common story you hear from people? Um, Usually some combination thereof, um, usually when the concern has to do with the child, they usually are bringing their child or their teen in, um, and they may not be bringing them particularly for sleep, but it is often a, one of the concerns that we want to try to address. Um, and so, yep, the child is there too. And they'll often report that they have a hard time falling asleep. Unfortunately, children are not the greatest reporters in terms of being accurate. Sometimes children will say, yes, it takes me two hours to fall asleep. And parents will say, really? Because I went back in in 10 minutes and you were out like a light. Um, but having said that, we do often have kids who really struggle to fall asleep in particular. And then kids with anxiety may also have a harder time staying asleep or early wakening um, and kind of seek out some support at that time if they're younger children. Um, and so things that we do- notice. You notice a big difference in early awakening versus, you know, onset insomnia. Do they tend to correlate differently with behavior or mood or other things? Um, that's a great question. I would say, actually, I think that correlates more with age, um, that younger children tend to have more likelihood of waking up early in the morning, you know, four or five, six o'clock in the morning before they need to be up and before their parents need to be up. Um, whereas children are more older teens are more likely to have difficulty falling asleep. Um, and again, a part of that is the natural shift in circadian rhythms at different ages developmentally. Um, and part of that is um, anxiety can play a big role in sleep difficulties to fall asleep. So separation issues, self-soothing kinds of issues that kids aren't, don't have that ability to quiet their mind or calm their worries or fears well um, are more likely to struggle to fall asleep. What about, um, you know, are there any differentiators like boys versus girls? Do they have given sleep issues or, again, age-related, early teen versus late teen, you know, other things that jump out at you? 
Yeah. I, I don't know so much about any research on gender differences. I would, yeah, again, say that age difference. And even uh, the older the teen gets, the more likely they are to have difficulty with falling asleep. Um, and, and again, if they have anxiety or ADHD, that's going to be even more so the case many times. Um, and then, so that's one of the things that we try to teach young people too, is how to have good patterns, you know, as teens, they have to start regulating that themselves more, maybe not having their phone by their bed or having a break from electronics. Um, nutrition can play a role. Exercise can play a role. Um, and then there are things they can do environmentally, like having, you know, dimmed lights, quiet sounds, um, scents that are calming. There's different things people can do to try to kind of enhance their ability to fall asleep. What, what about um, snoring or apnea or large tonsils or narrow airways, that kind of stuff in kids, you know, the physiological stuff. Do you address that very much? Absolutely. Um, and that's, that's so important. Sometimes parents will kind of mention those things anecdotally, like not really quite realizing how important those are. So they might mention, yeah, they really snore and they'll just kind of think it's funny, but really that's for us a red flag that there is something like you're talking about enlarged adenoids, enlarged tonsils. Um, maybe I actually recently worked with a youngster who um, have a REM sleep disorder to where they really don't enter REM sleep in the evenings at all, which is problematic because um, that's when we have our most restorative sleep. That's when our memory, our processing, our learning, our immune system are all most building us up to be able to kind of cope the next day. Um, and so that person was diagnosed with ADHD according to the test results. But really my question is, I want that child to have a sleep study and intervention on that sleep. Um, so any of those sleep disorders that interfere with sleep in general, the number of hours that are slept, but most importantly, their REM sleep is absolutely going to affect their mental health um, and their physical health as well. And so I'll direct them there to a sleep professional um, in the medical field for evaluation and treatment. So what, what kind of interventions, you know, like the environment has to be right. You know, it's, it's hard to do that. Like, you know, with my kids every night, I go in there and I say, turn this off, don't do that, don't do this, but you know, what about, um, is there any cognitive behavioral therapy you do or what kind of interventions would help kids as well? Yeah, great question. So part of it is the environmental pieces, which are, you know, keeping those lights down and the electronics away. But as you say, kids don't always want to comply with those. So from a cognitive perspective, both a behavioral and a cognitive perspective. So from a behavioral perspective, um, you know, with younger kids, you can kind of do some reinforcements for those types of behaviors by doing the thing we want them to do. Maybe there's, you get an extra book uh, the next morning instead of that night, if you've gone to sleep and you've kind of closed off your, close your eyes and, and, you know, keep your, keep your light dim and put, kept the electronics away, those kinds of behavioral reinforcements. Um, as they get older, though, we want kids to start to have their own ability to recognize what they need. So sometimes I'll have kids keep a log even of how they felt on a given day and track their sleep and see if they can begin to notice some patterns. Because if they begin to notice it, then it's much more meaningful than us as adults just telling them that that will make them feel better. Um, Another piece cognitively is that many kids have a hard time quieting their mind in the evening. And that can be because they're stressed or anxious or worried about what tests they have the next day or that, you know, conversation that they're afraid their friend is mad at them from the day. And so um, both identifying this is what's keeping me up and then giving them some strategies. And maybe that's uh, being able to, um, you know, put it in a container type of thing where they imagine that they put those worries in a container. Maybe they have a journal near their bed where they write down the things that they're afraid they'll forget. 
um, so that they don't have to continue to, to loop it through in their mind. Um, and then cognitive challenging is one way that people use cognitive behavior strategies to kind of challenge what they're thinking that they might be worried about for the next day. You know, I'm worried I'm going to fail my test, but the reality is I, I really don't usually fail my tests. I've studied, I'm probably going to be fine helping them to kind of talk themselves off the ledge as well as more um, kind of self-soothing types of things. So I often teach kids calming strategies. You may have heard the term mindfulness, which refers to just kind of getting your mind in the here and now and, and letting go of all the other things that will take us into the past or take us into the future, but not in that, just let's get in the moment. Um, so it might be really focusing on the sounds, focusing on their sense of touch, um, doing some deep belly breathing. We know that slow paced breathing releases oxytocin in the brain, which calms and settles the brain. It washes away the stress hormones and it allows our body to kind of physiologically relax. Um, doing some yoga poses can be helpful. Other imagery techniques. So those are all kind of cognitive strategies or physical strategies. Um, and then there's even some great calming apps that some kids really like because it walks them through some of those calming visualizations or breathing. Then you have the challenge that the phone is then in the room or the iPad or whatever that device is. Um, but it can be used for good as well as distraction. So, I mean, there's all these possibilities, but what do you see actually works or it just depends on the kid and, you know, how much do the parents intervene and how much do they help and, the kids say, leave me alone. Yeah. I mean, it's very individualized, right? So there are some kids who really want their parents to be an active part of helping them through like sleep routines or using good strategies that we might talk about. Um, and that can be great. The other times we want to either pull the parent away a little bit and have the child have some more independence or the child is the one saying, nope, I'm going to do this my way. And then the trick is, yeah, to try several different things and see how, what works, see what felt good to them. Um, and because we're all, this is true for all of us, right? We're going to do what we think works, what we feel better with. Um, and, and if kids can own it more, they're going to buy into it more. So depending on the age, obviously that there's some uh, factors there. We don't need 17 year olds whose parents are still helping them sleep, but it's reasonable that a seven year old's parents may still be helping them um, do some of these strategies. Well, because, um, you know, teenage girls will, you know, start having, let's say, a um, menstrual cycle. Do you see before and after that they change at all in their sleep habits or is there not really any data to show anything? Well, I think for both boys and girls, once they go through puberty, that's kind of the the time when their circadian rhythm shifts and is they don't get tired for about an hour to two hours later than they had earlier on. Um, and so that's true for both boys and for girls. And again, if, if in an ideal world when they can sleep in and still go to bed at 11, but get up at, you know, eight or nine, 10 o'clock in the morning, then that's great. But our, our society doesn't allow for that. Sometimes what we'll see then is, you know, the infamous teacher, teenager who's sleeping in on the weekend until 11, 12, one o'clock and parents feel frustrated, like they really should be getting up and having a more productive day. The reality is they're probably often just trying to kind of make up for their sleep deficit through the week. And sometimes they need that if there isn't a, a need to get up. Um, but it does suggest that if there are ways, if your teen is constantly sleeping till, you know, 12, one, two o'clock on the weekend, it may be worth looking at their week and see if there's ways to um, get them to be able to go to sleep or fall asleep a little bit earlier, changing, I don't know, their sports practices, or if they can do their homework earlier in the night. 
um, so they can sleep in a little bit later before they have to get up uh, for school. Um, but sometimes the reality is they just need to catch up on some of that sleep. So how much intervention makes a difference? Is it, you know, do you find that the family will do just a few things and then everything's great? Or do they need like a whole bunch of different factors to help the kids sleep better? Gosh, again, I wish there was an easy answer on that, but most of the time there's a couple of small tweaks that can be made and that's sufficient. Most people don't have to put a whole lot. Once they figure out what works, most people don't need to do lots of different kind of tricks to make sleep happen. Um, but it's a matter of trying things and not giving up the first time or two, something doesn't work. Any new habit takes some time to settle in. So I'll often kind of let people know this isn't going to work the first time. We want to try it five or 10 times till we see if maybe it's going to work. Some say really as many as 20 to 25 times before you try a new habit. So it's sticking with it till you figure out what works. Um, and if you're not getting success with kind of typical ways to increase sleep, then I do recommend touching base with a doctor too, to make sure that anything medical isn't happening. Allergies, asthma, adenoids, you know, um, a sleep disorder, because then all the behavioral tricks in the world, all the cognitive tricks in the world aren't going to help if there's something underlying that's not getting addressed. Yeah, you find that more often than, than not it's cognitive or is it more physical issues and- you know, when someone has physical issues, I guess the cognitive come right along with it or no? Oh, that's a great point. Yeah, certainly if there's physical issues, cognitive stuff's going to come along too because they'll start to worry. Sometimes if you've ever had insomnia, something that's often um, people talk about is as soon as you lay down in bed, you begin to have that worry of, oh gosh, I wonder how long it's going to take me to fall asleep tonight. Oh my gosh, I have such a busy day tomorrow. I really need my sleep. I wonder if it's going to take a long time. Oh, I'm never going to fall asleep. And that cognitive self-talk just works us up and gets our cortisol flowing in our brain. And it's absolutely counter to falling asleep. So definitely if there's a physical reason for that, you're going to start to see some of the cognitive pieces. Um, But I would say more often it is, um, you know, sometimes it's not even worry. It's just thoughts just moving through the head and it's hard to quiet those down. Um, And again, there are sometimes we are trying to go to bed before our body wants us to go to bed. So we can't fall asleep because our our melatonin hasn't been released in our body, which, which was what regulates our circadian rhythms and our sleep wake cycle. So, um, so that's a harder one when we have to try to go to bed at, you know, nine, nine 30, even though the body isn't ready to go to bed till 10 30 or 11. Yeah. I remember when my kids were little and I would lay with them and I'd turn off the lights and they'd go, I can't see. So you're not supposed to see. Exactly. (laughs) But now it's different. Now I, I go in, I catch them on their phones. I say, stop that. You're not going to be able to sleep. So it's just a struggles, but different struggles. You know? It is. It changes. It changes with age, but it, it, it can remain a struggle. And, and so sometimes it's a fun, let's do an experiment. Let's try plugging in our phones downstairs in the living room. Mom and dad will do it too, because really what we model for them is what they're going to do. We can't take our phones into the bedroom and expect them not to do the same. Um, I mean, we can. Sure. It's going to be less successful. <laughs> Um, so I always encourage all families, unless you have a job where you need to be on call as a parent, we also don't need our phones in the room. We don't need notifications going off. Even if it's on silent, the buzzing, the light, um, all of that is activating. Um, and so I just think as everyone heads upstairs or back to where the bedrooms are, we just all plug in. Um, and then it becomes not a punishment. It becomes just part of a healthy habit. That's a good point. How, how often do you have to recruit the parents and say like, we need you also simultaneously to model what we're trying to do for your child. Like, 
Oh, very often. <laughs> Absolutely. Very often I would say. And one of the things I'll say is how, how is it that we're asking your child to do something that you're not willing or able to do? So you have a fully developed brain and they don't yet, right? Their frontal lobe is still working. Um, and so that's where the decision-making problem solving logic, delayed gratification all lives in the frontal lobe of the brain that doesn't finish growing until the mid twenties. So I'll kind of use that biology to help parents see that you have that biology to make different decisions and to have good habits and routines to model for your child. They don't have all that yet. So they really need you to be doing what we're asking them to do too. Um, obviously in age appropriate ways, it doesn't mean as a parent, you go to bed at 8 PM, but it does, you know, if your child needs to go to bed at 8 PM, but it does mean maybe, you know, turning off electronics for a while before that dimming the lights, doing some exercise, but earlier in the day to get the body tired, but not in that last hour where it's going to get your adrenaline pumping. Um, and talking to them about why you choose that, what, why that works for you. That makes sense. Any, any breakthroughs in understanding or therapies that you see on the horizon or that maybe you're experimenting with? Um, I would say there, there's a, I've done some training in this. I'm not necessarily a, an expert in this, but there is a type of cognitive behavior therapy that actually is specific to insomnia that really helps people break down because it's different for everybody. What causes their difficulty falling asleep? Um, and it helps them break down. What is the thought that you're having? What is the behavior that you're having? Um, and how to very like kind of slowly and methodically shift those, the ones that are getting in the way and leave the ones that aren't alone. Um, and so, you know, maybe you can go to bed at different times and it doesn't seem to matter because it's the cognitive issues that are getting in the way and the, the worries or the beliefs about sleep, but maybe it is not the worries and the beliefs about sleep. And it's the fact that you're just flat out getting into bed two hours after your body was tired and now it's overtired and amped up and can't fall asleep. So then you slowly shift the, the sleep onset expectation. Um, and so it's called CBTI cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia, um, and so definitely there's been more and more practitioners trained in CBTI in the last few years. And sometimes there are insomnia clinics actually that really do focus on that. Well, very good. What's the best way for people to get in touch and find out more? Um, well, gosh, there's tons of resources um, about sleep in particular um, and about sleep and ADHD, which is one of the areas that I um, speak about. Um, but certainly I'm happy to share resources. If anyone wanted to contact me and my practice is, uh, bridges therapy and wellness center, which is a website of the same name, www.bridgestherapyandwellness.com all spelled out. Um, and I'm happy to share some resources at that point. That's great. Well, Dr. Mullally, thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. Absolutely. It was great to talk. Thank you. You've been listening to the finding genius podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.